Hello and welcome to the One Peter Five podcast, episode five. Today we've got a lot of ground to cover. Did you know Samorum Pontificum turned seven years old this week? Where are we? Also, the Roman rumor mill, Cardinal Burke's alleged demotion, the book that's got Pope Francis hot under the collar simply by discussing traditional church teaching on marriage and family, Cardinal Casper going off the reservation in the media in response to coverage of the Pope's irritation about this book, the co-synod president from Brazil. He's been in the media telling people that the church has always respected stable homosexual relationships. What's that all about, and why is he in charge of anything related to marriage and the family? And finally, the thing that seems to tie it all together—the marriage fiasco from Rome this past Sunday. What happened there, and is it a sneak peek of what's going to be happening next month at the synod? All this and more coming up next. You're listening to the One Peter Five podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Habemus Papam. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. Hi, everybody. Look, there's a lot going on, and things seem to be happening so fast it's almost impossible to keep up with them. I was talking to a friend this week. About all the stuff that's happening in the church and in the world, and I said, you know what it feels like to me. You remember that episode of "I Love Lucy" where they're working on the assembly line at the candy factory, and at first they're doing okay, they're getting the candy in the boxes, but pretty soon it's coming so fast they just can't, and it's piling up, and they're trying to eat it, and it's overflowing off the conveyor belt. I feel like that's what's going on. There's this rapid acceleration of things happening, problematic things. Troubling things, things that require thought and contemplation, and there's no time to give to them because every time you start looking at one, there's another one coming down the pike. There's another thing happening that you can't, you just can't keep up with. You know, in the midst of all of this, what do we have? We have a seventh anniversary this past Sunday of Samorum Pontificum, which is the title, of course, of the letter given motu proprio by Pope Emeritus Benedict the Sixteenth. Which officially did what implicitly had already existed all along. It made allowances for the never abrogated celebration of the traditional Latin Mass throughout the Roman Rite. Now, in 2007, this document was released in July, and it went into effect September 14th. So here we are, seven years later. And what's changed? Well, I can tell you what I've seen. I started going to the Latin Mass three years before Samorum Pontificum, and in those three years prior, I got a taste of what it was like to be an indult Catholic. That's what they called us, indult Catholic. An indult is basically a permission that's given to do a certain thing. And within the recent history of the church, indults were used to give permission to go ahead and carry on with abuses, not necessarily good things. There was an indult, for example, for communion in the hand because it was something that was already happening. I don't think there was ever an indult actually for altar girls, but it was another abuse that happened for so long that finally, Vatican just tried to put some guidelines on it and went ahead and said, "You know what? Go ahead." Let girls serve at the altar, but here are the rules, which were promptly and summarily dismissed in many places. So an indult was granted to celebrate the church's perennial liturgy, a liturgy that we know was codified by Pope Saint Pius V in Trent in the papal bull "Quo Primum" in 1570. But that codification, that that standardization of the liturgy, that sought to regularize, I guess you would say, the prayers. Of the liturgy, because you know we didn't live in a world like we do now, where we can record information and blast it across the universe, and everybody can have access to information in a matter of hours. So what happened over time is all these regional accretions had sort of been added to the prayers of the mass, and the missals were slightly different. 
because of the local practices and customs and personal piety of the priest and etc etc pope saint pius v following the tridentine reforms said no we need to celebrate one mass throughout the whole church universal let's do this unless you've got a right it's already 200 years old this is the missile that you're going to celebrate we're going to give you some time to do this but once you do it it's what's done right so that's why it's called tridentine because it came out of the council of trent these reforms that led to the Missal of 1570, which has been revised a number of times since, culminating in the version that is used now, the 1962 Missal, which was promulgated under Pope St. John XXIII. But prior to the Council of Trent and prior to Quote Primum and Pope St. Pius V, this was the liturgy of the Church. It was the liturgy of the Church at the very least from the time of Pope St. Gregory the Great in the 6th century. It remained essentially the same. It was noticeably similar. It would have been difficult to draw broad distinctions between that liturgy and the one that I go to on Sunday in my parish here in Virginia. You would definitely see differences, but they would be small. The substance remained the same. Just like the substance between the old Missal and, say, the Ruthenian Byzantine rite, actually very similar, the structure, the prayers, everything. So this liturgy, which had raised up and nourished all the saints of the church that you've ever heard of, with the exception of, you know, those canonized in the last two or three years, really, I think mostly in the last year, because actually Padre Pio... And St. Jose Maria Escriva, though they lived after the council, both had permission to continue saying the old mass, even after the new was promulgated. So the saints that you know and love, dating back at least to the time of the late church fathers, they had the same mass. And then suddenly, starting in the 19. 80s because there was a no man's land and you know following the promulgation of the new missile 6970 you needed permission to say this thing that had always been sacred it was pretty crazy and i can tell you not a lot of people got the permission to say it and during those years you could pretty much figure out which bishops cared much about following Christ and his church by coming to understand which bishops allowed members of their dioceses to attend this missal, this mass. I remember distinctly very early on in my exploration of sort of this traditional manifestation of Catholicism, the, the Catholicism that prefers the old rite. I went to a conference for Latin Mass magazine. And Father James McLucas, who I believe was the founding editor of Latin Mass magazine, was speaking, and he said that there was an incident of which he was aware, where a particular cardinal had been given the task by Pope John Paul II to call the dioceses around the world and express the Holy Father's wishes that the old mass would be allowed to be said. And he called one particular diocese here in the United States, and he expressed the will of the Holy Father. And the bishop on the other end of the line said, I'm the bishop of my diocese, not the Pope. End of conversation. This was illustrative, I think, of the of the attitude that was happening at that time. So you fast forward a few years to 2007, and this is what people are used to if they like the old Latin Mass, it's just what they have to deal with. Unless they want to go to an independent chapel, or to a breakaway group, or to the ever-confusing canonical status of the Society of St. Pius X, which has still never been sorted out. They had to take the scraps that they were given. You wanted a polka mass, you got it. You want a mariachi mass, you got it. You want a Native American mass, no problem. Sacrosanctum Concilium number 38, 
has to do with the the enculturation, bringing in of the culture of the people and using it in the liturgy, right? But if that culture happened to be Catholicism as it had been practiced for the better part of 2,000 years, you're out of luck. So then along comes Pope Benedict out of nowhere. And he issues this letter in which he says that the old rite had never been juridically abrogated, in which he says that what was once considered sacred and holy cannot be later considered disallowed, forbidden, or harmful. It was like a shot heard around the world. And now, what's the upshot? What I see is instead of one traditional Latin mass in a diocese, maybe you have three or four. In a large diocese like Arlington, Virginia, I can think of, like, I can count on one hand the ones I can think of. I know the parishes. I could tell you more or less when they are and what time. There may be some new ones that I don't know about. But it's seven years later, and by all accounts, we have one of the more traditional dioceses in the country, and we certainly have people who go to the Mass. And there's a handful. And they're at weird times. Most of them are 12.30 in the afternoon. It's never a standard time that's good for the families with small children who usually are what you see the most of if you go to the traditional Latin Mass. It's packed with families with little kids who are difficult at Mass anyway. And then you add to that the fact that most of these Masses that are done are not solemn high Masses with music. They're low Masses because it's the resources that they have, and so they're very quiet, and the kids are fussy because they're hungry and they need to sleep, frankly. They just do. It's that time of day. It's nap time. It's lunchtime. It's both. You know, and you see that the orders which embrace Samorum Pontificum, like the Franciscan friars of the Immaculata, I mean, they're under the boot. We don't know if they'll ever come back. Soon, soon, we hear. Their situation will be resolved soon. But will it? These guys are looking for new places to go. The seminarians are looking for new orders. It's been over a year. They have nowhere to go. And the whole reason that anybody is aware of is because they supposedly have quote-unquote crypto-Lefebian tendencies. Obviously, Bishop Lefebvre, the founding bishop of the Society of St. Pius X, and he who committed the illicit consecrations of four bishops in the 1980s against the will of Rome without the mandate that was required. So he's the poster boy for people who want the Latin Mass. It's not a trend, guys. It's not a fad. And I'm guessing if you're listening to this, you probably already agree. So maybe I'm preaching to the choir. But maybe I'm not. I am 37 years old. 36 not even 37. I'll be 37 in a couple months. 37 years old. I have no nostalgia for a mass I didn't grow up with. I love it because it's beautiful and because it's profound. And because when I go to it, I feel like I went to mass and I worshiped God. I feel like I saw the sacrifice on Calvary represented. I felt like I entered that sacred space in that sacred time. That's why I go. I have my children baptized in the Old Rite, because if you read the Old Rite, among the many things about the Old Rite of Baptism, which are beautiful, there is also some aspects which are superior. There are two exorcisms in the Old Rite of Baptism for, for babies, three for adults. Exorcism. The priest literally exercises demons and the devil's power away from your child who has just been born into the world under the auspices of original sin, under the influence of the devil. Kick them out. We don't want our kids to have that influence. We are born into this world 
spiritually dead. We are spiritually stillborn when we arrive in the hospital and are placed in our mother's arms. That is what we have inherited from Adam. That is what we have inherited from Eve. That is the covenant curse that we have received because of the fall of our first parents. And the devil is the prince of this world for a reason. And we're freed from that by those sacraments. I don't ever want to have to beg for that. I want as much power as possible manifested by the ministers of the church through, the, through her, her solemn priesthood. Get the demons away from my kids. Get the devil out of our life. Because I'm going to have to be fighting with it and they're going to have to be fighting with it enough anyway. The church's authority, the church's ministry can make that easier through the sacrament. I want that. That's why I go. I don't go because it's old. I don't do it because I think that, you know, I'm a Renaissance, Renaissance fair Catholic and I walk around with a sword and a cloak and I pine for the Middle Ages. I like living now. And I believe, and I hope you do too, that we were made for these times. We were born for this fight that's happening now. You know, somebody who has been a, a champion of the traditional Latin Mass. Cardinal Burke. When he was in La Crosse, Wisconsin, he gave the initial permission for the founding of the Canons Regular of the New Jerusalem, who are now, uh, now have the Priory of the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, in Charleston, West Virginia. Charlestown, West Virginia, not Charleston a traditional order of Augustinian priors. They look like monks. They have the tonsure, but they're priors, canons. I said priors, they're canons. Yeah, when he went to St. Louis, he gave the old cathedral of St. Louis to the Institute of Christ the King, which is a traditional Latin mass order, so that they could say mass in a, in a church building that was made for that mass. It was incredible. I mean, it was such a magnanimous gesture. And then Cardinal Burke was taken from us here in America and was brought to Rome, where he was made the head of the highest court of canon law in the world, uh, which is, the title was Prefect of the Supreme Tribunal of the Apostolic Signatura. It's not something I could remember. I had to look at my paper. But it was his job. He was basically the Supreme Court Justice of the Church. In matters of canon law, he had the final say. And last December, we got news that he had been removed from the Congregation for Bishops. Among his replacements, Cardinal Whirl from Washington, Washington, D.C. Now, American Catholics in particular see the contrast there because Cardinal Burke is the one who insisted on the enforcement of Canon 915. Canon 915 is the code of canon law, the section which deals with manifest grave sinners being denied communion on the grounds of the fact that they are manifest unrepentant grave sinners. And Cardinal Burke said that this included those Catholic politicians who support the cause of those who would further abortion rights and access uh, through civil legislation. So your Nancy Pelosi's and your Joe Biden's, your Kennedy's, whoever, they should be denied communion on the basis of the fact that they are supposedly Catholic but they support abortion, access to abortion, abortion rights. Now, Cardinal Whirl, who is currently the prefect, the prelate, who, re who presides over the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C., he will not enforce this canon. Will not. 
where all the politicians come to play. But he won't tell them, you don't get to come to my churches and receive communion. You mock Christ when you say you're a Catholic and you support the murder of the innocent. He won't say it. He won't do it. So seeing him replace Cardinal Burke on the Congregation for Bishops, it's a blow. But people tried to make the best of it, and they said, you know what? It's no big deal. He's got so many other things he's doing. He's probably going to make his life easier. He's going to be able to focus more on his work, etc., etc. But within the month of December last year, 2013, I also heard from a very reliable source that Burke was expected to also be removed from his position with the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments. So that hasn't materialized yet, although it may be happening very shortly. But the, but the con- Congregation for the Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments did just lose its own head. Colonel Antonio Cañares Llovera was the prefect for that congregation. He was a friend of tradition. He was a supporter of Samorum Pontificum. And in a very highly irregular move, he was sent back to his home diocese in Spain, breaking the Roman adage, you can't go home again once you become part of the Curia in Rome. And there's currently no head for the CDW. But we just had a traditionalist removed from there, or at least a, a supporter of Catholic tradition, not a traditionalist, a supporter of the traditional Latin mass, a fan, an advocate, someone who believed in Pope Benedict's Samorum Pontificum. And we have this sense of the diminishing influence of Cardinal Burke, but now Cardinal Burke one of the few princes of the church who's willing to speak clearly and unequivocally in favor of her teachings to the point where, I mean, most Catholics I know are really solid. They want Burke to be the Pope. It's never going to happen, but it's sort of their fantasy wish list, right? Now it's been a year since the last time Burke was demoted for a little while. At least it seemed like he might actually be out of danger. And then this week, you know, it's the rumor mill, but Sandra Magister, who is someone who has been covering the Vatican for a very long time and has immense credibility. When Magister writes something about the church, everybody reads it. Everybody on all sides. He's like the guy. He reveals all of a sudden, out of the blue, that Burke is going to be removed from his post as prefect of the Supreme Tribunal of the Apostolic Signatura, and then from all of his positions of influence within the Roman Curia as a whole. He will lose all of his power. According to Magister, if this happens, he will lose all of his power. And for what? To be made honorary head, cardinal patron of the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, replacing the current head, who is now 80 years old because it's really a retirement position for those cardinals who have earned honors and esteem but no longer possess the capacity to carry out the administrative duties of their office. Cardinal Burke is 66 years old. He is not an old man. In the eyes of the church, he has a ways to go before he should be put out to pasture. And if he's removed entirely from the Curia and put in just this position, which is essentially meaningless, some are already speculating it would mean that his invitation to participate in the Synod on Marriage and the Family in October would be rescinded. And that would make sense because he's been very critical of the proceedings leading up to that Synod. He has reiterated the Church's teachings on marriage and on family, 
so much so that he's actually included in a book being published by Ignatius Press called Remaining in the Truth of Christ, Marriage and Communion in the Catholic Church. It's a compendium of essays and information, different articles, all of it related to the traditional Catholic doctrine on family and marriage, you know, the, the praxis surrounding the Blessed Sacrament, our Lord's own words when it comes to marriage and, and receiving the Eucharist, etc. And in this book, five different cardinals of the Church and other scholars as well are basically responding to the call made by Cardinal Walter Casper, who has been seeking this pastoral solution to, you know, harmonize these words, harmonize, quote, fidelity and mercy and its pastoral practice with civilly remarried and divorced people, end quote. A number of cardinals are on the list of those who submitted material for this book, including, I won't list them all, but including Cardinal Burke, and interestingly, Cardinal Mueller, who is the current head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which was Ratzinger's position before he was elected Pope Benedict. Now, Cardinal Casper, of course, claims that support for his position of trying to reconcile, allowing the divorced and remarried to receive communion after a period of penance, but without removing themselves from the situation where they are living in sin, where they are... These are not Josephite marriages, right? I mean, they're living as husband and wife after they've been divorced and remarried, not annulled. And he thinks that after a period of indeterminate amount of penance, pastorally they should be allowed to return to the sacrament of the Eucharist without any further discontinuation of those actions which would be considered adultery according to the definition of Christ. You don't get to be divorced and remarried in the church. It's never been allowed. You know, and the Eastern Orthodox do this. They have this idea of oikonomia, right? So it's mercy or tolerance. It's bending the rules in order to make stuff work. Because they're a lot less doctrinal than we are much more mystical, and there's some advantages to that. But I've been told that they also allow the divorced and remarried after a period of penance to come back and receive the sacraments again, and the second marriage is simply not considered sacramental. This is a problem. Traditional Catholic doctrine has never allowed this. But now we're hearing reports out of Rome that are saying that Pope Francis himself, who, by the way, he expressed, you know, support and attachment for Cardinal Casper's proposals at the consistory that were, you know, all about, hey, what are we going to talk about when we get to the Synod on Marriage and Family in October 2014? He, he talked up Casper's books. He said he liked his proposal. Well, now, all of a sudden, this book is coming out and... People are saying that the Pope is angry and that he's explicitly forbidden Cardinal Mueller, who is quoted in the book, who submitted material for the book. He's told him, you can't promote this. Not allowed. Some are even drawing, you know, connecting the dots and saying that this is why Burke is going to be essentially eliminated as a member of the Roman Curia and exiled to this strictly honorary position without any governing power. So is the Pope irritated by this book? I mean, how can we know? I don't know how we can know. What I do know is that the battling that's happening inside the Vatican between the factions which are trying to be faithful to Christ's teaching and those who want to innovate it away, it's ramping up. Pat Archbold, who is an occasional contributor to 1 Peter 5, also a columnist for the National Catholic Register and the main guy at Creative Minority Report, wrote an article this week 
for the register, and he entitled it The Humiliation of Cardinal Burke, The No Spin Zone. I'd like to read this to you, because I think it matters, and I think it needs to be talked about. He writes, By now most people have heard the rumor from multiple sources that Cardinal Raymond Burke will be removed from the apostolic signature where he serves as prefect. This comes after being already removed from the Congregation for Bishops by Pope Francis. Further, it is rumored that Cardinal Burke will be appointed Cardinal Patron of the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, a largely symbolic position. This decision is said to be in response to a book to which Cardinal Burke contributed to be published soon by Ignatius Press, in which the propositions preferred by Cardinal Casper in his keynote speech in preparation for the Synod on the Family are systematically dismantled. The book defends the traditional Catholic understanding of marriage, its history, and the praxis of withholding communion from those divorced and remarried, as well as rebutting some arguments in favor of toleration of these arrangements. Lastly, it is speculated that if this move takes place in advance of the Synod, Cardinal Burke will lose his automatic invitation as a member of the Curia. Now, it must be stated that these decisions have not been formally confirmed by, by the Vatican, and that even well-sourced rumors can be wrong. But assuming that the rumors are correct, if the Pope does this, he will have entered the no-spin zone. Among those who watch such things... This Pope has already become famous for leaving things vague. There are so many situations where we are unsure of exactly what the Pope has said or done and which the Pope declines to clarify that it would be difficult to list them all here. In such situations, it is incumbent upon many Catholics to give the best possible interpretation to events and copious benefits of many doubts. In fact, it seems that an entire cottage industry has spawned to do this very thing, to spin the Pope's words or actions in a way that fits with his carefully crafted image. In other words more common, they are the spin machine. But this move, if it happens, will be unspinnable. Some have already tried with embarrassing results. very embarrassing results. This is a brutal Vatican politics carried out at the highest level for the crime of intransigent orthodoxy. This would be a blatant humiliation of a curial cardinal at a crucial moment to prevent him from galvanizing opposition to the current zeitgeist going into the synod. If this happens as rumored, there will be no spinning it or removing the Pope's fingerprints from the crime scene. You know, Cardinal Casper is himself trying to spin this. He's been out this week, upset, talking to the media, trying to understand, you know, why? Why am I a victim here? He doesn't like being taken to task for what he's publicly proposed. So according to Cardinal Casper, here's his problem. He says... None of my brother cardinals has ever spoken with me. I, on the other hand, have spoken twice with the Holy Father. I arranged everything with him. He was in agreement. What can a cardinal do but stand with the Pope? I am not the target. The target is another. Asked if the target was Pope Francis. The cardinal replied, Probably yes. Father Zulsdorf, who blogs at What Does the Prayer Really Say, says that this is untrue that he's in fact seen the book, that he knows what's in it, and that Pope Francis is only mentioned in the text in a favorable way. In fact, he's praised. So, Father Z says, Cardinal Casper sees them coming. He's the target and he knows it. And according to Father Z, this is why, quote, he is hiding behind the Holy Father's skirts. This is frustrating. Casper wants to hide. He's doing it effectively. He's saying, and he has said all along, he said when he came to America to promote his book and he was doing the book tour, he said that the Pope agreed with all of his proposals. 
He's like the guy saying we should be giving communion to the divorced and remarried for pastoral reasons. We must do it for the pastoral reasons, for mercy. We must do it for mercy. No. No, we mustn't do it for mercy. We have to do it. Not at all. What we have to do is tough love. We have to remind people, hey, guess what? You're in sin. Everybody gets there sometimes. We all fall. But to receive the Eucharist in a state of mortal sin is is a lie, first of all, because you're expressing communion with God that doesn't exist. But secondly, it's sacrilege. Sacrilege. He who eats or drinks the body and blood of our Lord unworthily eats and drinks condemnation unto himself. It's scriptural. There's no getting around it. Bishop Athanasius Schneider, who I mention all the time, in his speech at Oxford, he mentioned this specifically. He says, you don't give sugar to a diabetic just because they want it and you feel a feeling of love toward them or you want to be merciful toward them. You don't do this. If you give them sugar, you're going to hurt them. You're going to make them more sick. They need to understand why the sugar is bad for them. They need to understand why it's not something they can have. You don't just give it to them because you want them to feel good. Because it'll make them feel worse. We don't give communion to people living in mortal sin because they feel excluded. You don't give it to them and you tell them why. And you work with them to try to find a solution to get them out of sin. I wouldn't be surprised if most of the marriages that are celebrated these days are invalid. I wouldn't. I know it's a controversial statement. It's something that the Pope said, you know, supposedly, through Casper again, that he said that he thinks 50% of marriages in the Catholic Church are invalid. I would not be surprised because nobody prepares these people. When my wife and I went on our obligatory marriage retreat for the diocese, I mean, I don't know, there were at least 50 couples there, maybe more. I think there were fewer than five, maybe fewer than three, including us, who weren't already openly living together in sin. They were just going through the motions. This is what the church said they had to do, and whether they wanted to regularize their marriage or whether someone in their family wanted them to, I don't know. But they were all sleeping together already. And they didn't have a problem admitting it. They did the show of hands. You know, and I mean, it goes back to what happened in Rome this past Sunday. So there's this big, I guess we have to do lots of theatrics in advance of the Synod for Marriage and Family. And so there's this big fiasco where the Pope is going to, you know, personally bless the marriages of a whole bunch of people. Um which is fine. I don't have a problem with that. But it's weird. I mean, first of all, it's done on the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross, which is okay. You can do that. It's a Sunday Mass. It's a it's a feast day of the church. But it's a particular feast day that concerns suffering. It concerns the fact that there is no cross. I mean, there is no Christianity without the cross. You can't have it. You can't have one without the other. We don't get to heaven without embracing the cross, the suffering that comes our way. We all mess up and we all reject it sometimes and we stumble and we fall and we go to confession and we get back up and we do it again. But this is why the cross is exalted because you don't get to heaven except by it. You are raised to heaven on the cross. So on this feast day, this great feast day of the church, You have people getting married in Rome, and that's fine, and that's great, except wait. Out comes this statement from the Diocese of Rome that was reported in all the major news outlets. Here it is. Ready? Quote, The people getting married on Sunday are couples, like many others. Some already live together. Some already have children. End quote. So here we have a statement coming from the Pope's own diocese, and it contains three big 
problems. The first is, it makes it sound as though the people getting married are currently living in a state of sin. That's what I hear when you say some already live together, not have lived or used to live, but already live together. Some already have children. So they're living in a state of sin against the sixth commandment. This is what's implied. Not my statement. This is the statement from the Diocese of Rome. And it's deeply troubling. Why? Well, because it's reasonable to assume, if they are still living in a state of sin, that they have not been called to repentance. Do you sense a theme? Do you sense a commonality here? Synod on marriage and family. Proposals on not calling people to true repentance, but simply a period of penance and reflection so that they may once again receive the sacrament without removing themselves from the objective state of mortal sin. Marriage is in Rome. People are already living in sin. We don't know if they were called to any sort of repentance. There's no indication of that. They just, the diocese tells us that they're already living together. And this means that anybody living in mortal sin is cut off from the graces of the sacrament of matrimony itself. Now, I have a few theologian friends on speed dial. I studied theology and got my little certificate, my, my bachelor's degree in it, but I don't consider myself a real theologian. I just play one on the internet. But I have friends who are, friends with the full pedigree, teachers, professors, people with doctorates and master's degrees from pontifical universities, you name it. And I have heard this action of allowing people in a state of sin, mortal sin, to receive the sacrament of matrimony without calling them to repentance as contempt for the sacrament itself on the part of the clergy who would allow it and an objective grave sin of sacrilege by knowingly giving a sacrament of the living to those dead in sin. I'm going to let that sink in for a second. A grave sin of sacrilege on the part of the clergy for knowingly giving a sacrament of the living to those who are dead in sin. Particularly, particularly if they are dead in sin and you have not called them to repentance as a priest. Now I know the code of canon law, the current code, says that a priest cannot refuse the sacrament of matrimony to a couple that requests it. And I understand the argument for regularizing a marriage so that they will no longer be sinning. <laughs> it's so bad. It's it's the same it's communion in the hand all over again. It's every abuse that we let happen and then sanction and give permission to and then it becomes widespread practice. A few people, you know, in, in the German and Dutch countries are 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 receiving communion in the hand against the rules of the church. And Pope Paul VI fecklessly tries to contain it by saying, okay, I'll give you guys permission, but nobody else. And it just spreads. And then it's like, okay, well, we'll let you guys have permission. But really, it's only allowed in those countries where it's already a practice that's well-established. And it spreads and it spreads and it spreads to the point where now there are people in this world, in this country, in America, who are being denied Holy Eucharist because they want to receive it on their tongue and on their knees. And they're being told that this is not the practice of the church. It was an abuse. And through weakness and capitulation and acquiescence to sin, it was allowed. And now it's universal. What do you think happens when you tell people you don't have to stay in that marriage you're in? Get out. It's fine. You can come back to the sacraments. You know anybody in a difficult marriage? I do. You stay in that marriage and you work and you fight and you claw your way forward toward heaven, hoping that God's grace and your efforts will allow you to reconcile and live your vocation. And now, 
You're going to tell people you don't have to do that. It's too hard. It's just too hard. Why don't you not worry about it? We'll marry you. doesn't matter if you're living in sin. We're not even going to ask you to do that repentance stuff. Shh. You don't have to repent. Come on. It's the 21st century. And if the marriage gets too hard, no big deal. You could do some penance for a couple months, and then you can come back, you know, with your new spouse or whatever, whoever you're living with at the time. It's fine. And you can receive the sacraments again. It's mercy. We just want to be merciful to you. Stop it. Stop it right now. Stop. That is not Catholicism. That is something else. But that is not the church. So the second problem with this statement from the Diocese of Rome is that if, in fact, the people have, and maybe they were, maybe they've been called to repentance, but they've chosen not to accept it. Who knows? Well, now we have not only the scandal of point one, where we are giving the impression that they haven't been called to repentance and we're allowing them to receive the sacrament anyway, but now we have the added sin of detraction of we're going to make a press statement saying, hey, guess what? These people are already living in sin and it's fine. No, it's not fine. And telling people the sins of others without an objective valid reason, according to the Catholic Catechism, paragraph 2477, is called the sin of detraction. The third problem, the people in question, if they have been called to repentance, which could have happened, and they chose to accept it, which is the ideal situation, then Rome's statement, you know, because, and I'm, I'm laying these out because people are saying, well, we don't know what happened. Well, there's three options. They were either not called to repentance and were married anyway. They were called to repentance and rejected it, or they were called to repentance and accepted it. And so this is the third option. Maybe they were called to repentance and accepted it. Great. But the statement from Rome is implying that these people are still living in sin anyway. And according to the same paragraph of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2477, <sighs> remarks contrary to the truth, harming the reputation of others and giving occasion for false judgments concerning them, is the sin of calumny. Is there another option? I can't think of one. Either they repented or they didn't. Either they were called to repentance or they weren't. But whatever the case, what Rome is saying is that they are living in sin right now and everything is fine because they're the normal modern family. It's normal. It's totally normal. So you've got this attitude being expressed as a reflection of the Vatican's focus on marriage and the family leading up to the synod on marriage and the family. And then you've got Burke being put quietly away because he rejects all this stuff. And you've got Casper out there in the media saying the Pope agrees with him on all this stuff. Whether he does or he doesn't, he's saying it and nobody's telling him to shut up. And now, in addition to all of that, you've got the Pope reportedly being irritated, and this was leaked by somebody inside the Vatican, highly placed, close to the Pope, saying he's irritated about this book being written that re-emphasizes the Church's traditional teachings on marriage and family. And again, another bomb drop this week. The Synod co-president. So the synod that's coming has a co-president. That co-president's name is Raimundo Cardinal Damasenio Assis of Aparecida. Do I have this correct? Yes, he's one of the three presidents appointed by Pope Francis for the upcoming Extraordinary Synod on the Family. And he tells the media in Brazil... 
that the Church has always wanted to respect stable homosexual unions. The Church has always wanted to respect stable homosexual unions. Let me quote this. This is from Catholic Family News, but they pulled it from Arate Chile. I mean, this is around. You can find it on the web. An article published yesterday, September 16th, on the largest Brazilian daily, Folha de Sao Paulo, lauds the softer and tolerant rhetoric of Francis, especially regarding homosexuality. Singled out for praise is Raimundo Cardinal Damasceno Assis of Aparecida, president of the CNBC, which is the basically the bishop's conference in Brazil, who is described as, quote, aligned with the recent statements from the Vatican, that is, preaching a more respectful and less severe attitude toward homosexual unions. On the question of homosexual unions legalized by the Brazilian Supreme Court in 2011, Cardinal Damasceno Assis is quoted as saying, quote, It is a decision by the Supreme Federal Court, the highest constitutional court in Brazil. Of course, for the Church, it, homosexual union, cannot be equated to marriage. That is different. But regarding respect for the stable union between these people, there is no doubt that the Church has always been trying to do it this way. People, I started 1 Peter 5 because I believe the church is bigger than all of this. I believe that the church is bigger than a single papacy, a single synod, a single council. That the church has roots in history, in nature, and in supernature that Christ's promise of indefectibility remains. But there are wolves amongst our shepherds. There are men who do not believe what the church teaches, if they believe in God at all. I'm not sure that they do. And they want to change everything we believe and remake and reshape the church in their own image. And they're going to try. There's absolutely no way we can know how this shakes out. The Synod starts in October. And now, of course, instead of it being a single occasion of Synod, <laughs> I think that's a phrase I'm going to have to coin, an occasion of Synod. Instead of it being simply one occasion on which a Synod is held, it's being stretched out over the next couple of years. So maybe nothing revolutionary happens right now. They're very good at probing defenses and figuring out, well, how are people going to receive this? Should we pull back? Should we move forward? It's impossible to say. But I tell you that there are men who are ordained bishops of the Catholic Church, some of whom are wearing the red hat, highly placed, highly involved in the synod, who hold heretical positions, who want to dismantle the church's teachings on marriage and desire to undermine the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist, to destroy belief in the real presence by diminishing everything that Christ said, by diminishing everything that Christ is in that sacrament. He explicitly said in the Gospels, that there was no remarriage after divorce. He explicitly said in the Gospels that my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink, and he who does not eat my flesh and drink my blood cannot have eternal life. In one fell swoop, an action like they are proposing, and I see the vultures circling the carcass, they're coming for the kill. They want to take out the church as we know it. And they might succeed in taking out the church as we know it. The church will remain. But we need to be ready for anything, literally anything. It could be 
you know, the manifest apostasy of bishops. It could be a heated battle within the synod. It could be a schism that breaks the church. The Catholic prophecies all talk about this. Something is coming. And is this it? It's impossible to say. But the hallmarks are here. I have been talking to people in the last couple of weeks who are seriously having their faith shaken by watching this happen. Don't let it take your faith. Don't keep your eyes on Peter right now because during the storm, Peter's the one who sank. Keep your eyes on Christ. Yes, I know we have to trust the papacy. But keep your eyes on Christ. Another person said it somewhere I saw this week. It's Peter's boat and Christ is asleep. Wake him with prayer and with penance. God has a plan for what's happening right now, and we cannot see it. If you can see it, please contact me and let me know. I would love your insight. But I don't see it, and neither does anyone else I'm talking to. We only see the danger. But I have absolutely no doubt that God is in charge, that he is in control, and that even now he's working to put pieces in place that we will never see coming. And only when we look back will we say, oh my gosh, that's what he was doing. He is in control of this situation, even though they think they are. The devil's time to do whatever it is he's doing must be running short because he is pulling out all the stops. He is trading the subtlety that he usually works with for brute force. Don't lose faith. It's exciting. I don't know about you. I'm a storm chaser by heart. Big, nasty thunderstorm, black clouds rolling in. I want to get in my car and drive out right into the middle of it. I am fascinated and humbled by forces which dwarf me, over which I have no control. Nature is like that. God is like that. The church is like that. This is going to play out in a way that none of us will clearly see until it's done. But it's going to be all right. And like Moses parting the waters of the Red Sea and leading the people to the promised land out of Egypt while the waves are furiously restrained on either side and the Egyptians are in pursuit it was a narrow path it was a narrow way out but stay on that path there's peace and serenity there trust God he is looking out for his own get ready to fight engage in spiritual combat be prayerful have a strong sacramental life do whatever you can to deepen your faith now because when the storm hits, it's going to rip people up by the roots. I am telling you, people you know, people in your life are going to lose their faith in the coming years. Maybe sooner rather than later. You're going to hear from a friend or a family member, someone who says, I don't know why I converted. I don't know why I believe in this anymore. I have never been so scandalized. I can't trust the Pope. I can't trust the bishops. I can't trust the church I'm already hearing it. You may already be hearing it. If you don't yet, you will soon. Encourage those people to hold on. Find whatever you can to, to just reach out to them and say, don't give up. God has a plan. If we don't keep them in the boat, they're all going to fall out, and we can't have that. We need every last one of us. We're going to keep trying to do all that we can to give you all the tools and resources possible. And we ask you to just pray and, and to support us. Please support us financially as well as spiritually. 1 Peter 5 takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time to, to make all this content. And 
keep the website up and running and do the podcasts and do the design and do everything that goes into it. It's a lot. It's a lot. I love this. I've never loved the work that I did on a daily basis more, but I need your support. I've never worked so hard on anything in my life, and I can't do it <laughs> for free. I have a family. Help me out. Help me to give this everything I've got because we need it now. We cannot let it sort of fall by the wayside. We need to forge ahead. This time is critical. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. You have been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of Signo Media, copyright 2014, all rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. That's www.1peter5, all spelled out, all one word, dot com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5 and follow us on Twitter again at twitter.com forward slash 1peter5. If you feel that we have provided you with something of value, please, please hit our donate page and make a contribution. It not only helps pay for our web hosting and the fine content we provide, but helps us keep food on the table, and that's kind of important. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening.